Hello and welcome to Carnivorous Chats. My name is James, your host. I started this podcast to help other folks share their own healing stories and to interview thought leaders and experts in the carnivore, keto, and low oxalate space. Before we begin, I'd like to give a shout out to Equip Foods and the Carnivore Bar. As an affiliate, you can use the link in the show notes to get a discount on their products when you check out using the code CARNIVOROUS. Thanks in advance for listening, subscribing, and any likes or shares. And now, on with the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Carnivorous Chats. It's James, your host. I am very excited to welcome this guest to the show today. What he does and how he does it has been so profoundly impactful on my journey, specifically coming from a plant-based vegan background to now reintroducing meat into my diet and regaining my health that I am super honored and really privileged to welcome Will Harris, the owner of White Oak Pastures to Carnivorous Chats. Will, thank you so much for taking the time out to join me today. Thank you so much for having me on your show, James. I appreciate it. Sir, if you can just allow me a, a minute to, and we're going to get into your wonderful book, which is called A Bold Return to Giving a Damn, One Farm, Six Generations, and the Future of Food. And I read it cover to cover, and I could barely put it down because I'm so interested in the agricultural space, now knowing what I know and feeling a little bit misled on that plant-based push that came about five to 10 years ago, which I fell victim to. I'd just like to read this introduction to give the listeners a better understanding of what it is that you do. Raised as a fourth-generation farmer, Will Harris inherited White Oak Pastures as a full-time commodity cowboy who played hard and fast with every tool the system offered, chemicals, antibiotics, steroids, and more. His ancestors had built a highly profitable, conventionally-run machine, but over time, he found himself disgusted with the excess, cruelty, and small-town devastation this system entailed. So he bet the farm on forging a different way of doing things, one that works with nature, not against it and bridges the quickly widening delta between consumers and their food. Armed with tenacity, conviction, and an outsized tolerance for risk, Will called his approach radical traditional, and it made him an icon of the real food movement. So, sir, with that being said, I wonder if you could give the listeners a bit of that background in terms of the familial history with White Oak Pastures and how it all got started. So please, the floor is yours, Mr. Harris. I'd be delighted. Thank you very much. So my great-grandfather came to this farm in 1866, right after the American Civil War, and uh, started the farm. Uh, He farmed it all his life and uh, was followed by his son, my grandfather, followed by his son, my father, followed by me, and I am being followed by two adult daughters and their spouses, and between them, they have five children who are my grandchildren. So it's, uh, was it, five, six generations on the farm. The, the thing that I enjoy telling most is how my great-grandfather and grandfather farmed the land with a, a, an immense amount of focus on the, the land, the animals, and the community. That was what it was about for them. That was that was the measure of success and wealth. My dad took over the farm post-World War II. He was born in 1920, so he would have been uh, 25 years old. And he changed the farm remarkably from what it was to a what was then modern, linear, monocultural cattle farm. Instead of raising a lot of different species of plants and animals, he was focused very narrowly on cattle. And he ran the the business successfully for his career. Uh, 
I never wanted to do anything except what my dad did. I wanted to be a, a monocultural cattleman. It was it was what I uh, thought was the, the, the grandest form of of livelihood. I went to the University of Georgia, majored in animal science. Graduated in 1976, came home and ran it very industrially for 20 years as a monocultural cattle operation. And in the mid-90s, I started moving away from that. Thank you for that, Will. Let me ask you a couple of questions, if I can, at this juncture, and just say, with knowing that you wanted to take over directly to what your father was doing, how long did you... And then talking as we move into the change that you made into the regenerative space, how long did you operate the farm under those, this quote unquote, industrial inputs before the change was made after you took over from your father? You know, 20 years. You know, I operated it for 20 years and made money every year. When I made the change, it was not an economic decision. It was, it was deeper than that. Having read your book and listened to you a few times now, Will, on, on podcasts, it was really really a bold thing to do, which is the name of the book, A Bold Return to Giving a Damn. And we're so thankful that you did it. I know you've been asked a few times about the impetus for the change, but specifically for my listeners, many of whom follow me because of that switch that I made in my eating habits and really trying to understand what is the beneficial nature of regenerative agriculture. Could you let the listeners know what was the point at which you said, you know what, I look, I'm looking at this and I need to do something because this is this is not in my heart what I know to be true. It was a, a, a growing dissatisfaction that grew very quickly. I was very happy doing what I was doing for 20 years. It was profitable. We, we were not rich people, but we lived very comfortably. But when I started feeling dissatisfaction, it, it happened very quickly. And I made, made up my mind to move away from what I was doing. I, I did not have a real business plan of this this is what I'm going to do different. I just didn't like what I was doing anymore. The excesses of it. So much chemical fertilizer, so much pesticides, so much hormone implants, so much ionosphores, so much just the uh, embr the embracing of technology to do better, better, more, more, quicker, quicker became distasteful to me. So um, my departure from the industrial model was more, at first, was more about quitting things than it was doing new things, ceasing to use these technologies that I just didn't believe in anymore, suddenly. I heard you say once on a podcast, and, and again, thank you for making that change and educating folks as you are doing now. We'll get into the nonprofit at the end of this discussion that you have uh, so graciously started to to assist in that regard, that you would thought of selling your soul for some fertilizer at some point, and that you had literally put fertilizer on every square inch of that farm prior to making the change. Is that correct? Yeah, my dad uh, <clears throat> was the first uh, person to use chemical fertilizer in our community. He started using it uh, in, in 1946, 45, 46, and it was like magic. I mean, it just just nobody had ever seen anything like that. And he used it every year, at least once or twice per acre, uh, per year on every acre. And I did the same thing. And when I quit, that was the hardest thing to leave. You know, I've, I've never had a, a cocaine. I've never used cocaine, but I believe that's what it's like. 
getting off uh, a drug, a narcotic. Because I just, I, I thought about it all the time. I, I, I could see the need for it everywhere I looked. And it was uh, it was very hard to do. And today, you know, I, was, I guess it's like a smoker that 20 years after he quit smoking would still love a cigarette. And I would still love to put some ammonium nitrate out. But I understand that. And ammonium nitrate, I mean, chemical fertilizer. But I, I, I understand the damage too much. And one of the other th things I heard you say, Will, was that animal welfare was the canary in the coal mines, so to speak, when you were considering making this change. And I had never really understood, and, and, and thank you again for educating me on this, uh, about animal science prior to being called animal husbandry. There are, I think, four things that that includes, and I wonder if you could list those for the listeners. So before I started, I made this transition I thought my animal welfare was was great. You know, I would have I would have uh, yelled at you if you questioned uh, my animal welfare because I thought it was just above reproach. I thought as long as I I had been raised to believe and trained to believe by my father and and the University of Georgia that if if I kept the animals well fed, well watered, protected from danger in a comfortable temperature zone, that, that's great animal welfare. That's fine. There's nothing else you can do for them. And I came to realize that that is not good animal welfare. And the same is true with other species, pigs and chicken. You know, cattle were born to roam and graze. Pigs were born to root and wallow. Chickens were born to scratch and peck. And in the industrial confinement model that raises 90-something percent of what we eat, those animals can't do that. And it's, 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 it's horrible animal welfare, but we just, we just closed our eyes to that. Yeah, and again, another profound moment for me, Will, was when I heard you say that they're not allowed to express what you call their instinctive behavior. As you just said, pigs like to wallow and chickens like to scratch and peck. Um, and the other thing was that a feedlot cow would never occur in nature the way they are bred and fed. And then, of course, I did the investigations about the scene of them all lined up in these huge lots versus what you were doing at White Oak and allowing these animals to express as you say, their natural instincts. It's its pretty incredible when you look at it. I think Wikipedia t t tells us that the uh, life expectancy of a cow is 24 years. I, th I think I've got that right. I, looked, I, didn't, I didn't look it up lately, but I've looked it up before. And uh, a cow in a feedlot, uh, in, in uh, uh, gaining three or four pounds a day, eating a high carbohydrate diet with no room to move uh, i i bet they wouldn't live to be four years old in that feedlot if we if we get granted them a pardon and just said well today is really a slaughter day but i'm just going to let you continue to live here they couldn't live that long they're they're incredibly obese on an unnatural diet and they just wouldn't live very long. So that means when we eat confinement beef, feedlot beef, and the same would be true with poultry and, and pork, you're eating an animal that is dying of the things that kill most of us, a sedentary lifestyle, 
poor diet, probably too many drugs, etc. I've had a few authors and been graced with their presence on the podcast so far, Will. And Lierre Keith may, may or may not be known to you. She wrote an incredible book called The Vegetarian Myth. Also, a lady by the name of Jane Buxton, who wrote The Great Plant-Based Con, which is a more recent read. And all of them are rallying against the CAFO, large industrial production of animal agriculture, and supporting wholeheartedly the regenerative space, which is what you folks are doing at White Oak Pastures. And again, you've just heard me say at the beginning in introduction that I came from a plant-based vegan background. My care for the animals has not left me. However, I understand better through the work of folks like yourself the impact that regenerative agriculture has, the importance also that grass-fed meat and well-raised poultry has on our diet and us, how we evolved as humans. And as they so succinctly put it, it's not the cow, it's the how. And that comes back to everything um, in terms of how they're grazed, um, the methane that they supposedly release. This is where we're really going to get into talking about, Will, on the impact on the soil and how profound it was and what you notice from the industrial inputs over to the regenerative space. Just before we get there, though, I wanted to ask you a question about when you first made that transition over. I know there was a few years where the excess is left, and for a while, because you're making that transition into regenerative agriculture, it uh, it got a little bare before it got better. Can you talk to us about that process, how long it took before you start to th see things coming back, let's say? Uh, absolutely. And it's, uh, it's a question that I can't give you... Uh, uh definitive answer time-wise, but I can't address the question. And I I really uh, underestimated the uh, economic impact of making the change that I made. You know, I, I don't know exactly what I was expecting, but I did not expect it to be as financially painful as it was. We are uh, you know, ceasing to use all those tools that increased production in terms of volume and time, when I gave them up and lost that volume and that time, it was very expensive. And we went from making money every single year to having some years that we operated at a loss. I was very fortunate. I, I had uh, equity in the farm, so we could afford, we did afford to do that, but it, it was not much fun. Any length, the, uh, the, the 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 land the cycles of nature did restart and that's what that's what it was about is restarting those cycles of nature that I had broken my dad and I had broken by using again chemical fertilizers pesticides subtherapeutic antibiotics and honest all those tools that jacked up production but caused a disruption in those cycles of nature I think we ought to take one second and just mention the cycles of nature. You know, and there, there are many of them, and I'm, I'm not, I, I could not list them all for you. I don't know that anybody can, but the ones that we work with every day are the carbon cycle, the mineral cycle, the energy cycle, the water cycle, the grazing cycle, and then there are others that are in nature. Uh, unimpeded producing an abundance. All that coal and natural gas and oil in, way down deep in the ground 
is a result of the abundance of nature when these cycles were operating optimally in the era of the dinosaur. For the last 60 or 80 years, we've been living on that abundance. We've been harvesting it. We've been harvesting what the what nature produces, but over and above that, we've been using what was left from long ago. So we, we, we kind of, we've been cheating ourselves. I've heard you often say as well, Will, that nature abhors a vacuum, but it abhors a monoculture even more. And it exactly goes to what we're talking about right now. From watching you on Joe Rogan as well, when you brought that recent soil sample in, yourself and Jenny brought the soil sample to show, and there's videos on White Oak Pastures website and the difference between yours, your farm and your neighbor's farm in terms of runoff and how what you're doing holds the water and holds the topsoil. Talk to the folks about the difference in the topsoil, these microbes and what these animals are doing and how you get, how you've built back this topsoil and how much has come back since you started this. I'm, I'm very proud of, of the uh, manifestation of our changes uh, in, in our soil. When I started changing the way I farmed this land 25 years ago, our soil was down to one half of 1% organic matter. I know that because my neighbors are still at one half of 1%. My neighbors who have not changed the way they farm. Uh, our soil on white oak pastures is over 5% organic matter, 10x more. And I want to tell you what that means. It's uh, Organic matter is the life in the soil. And a half percent organic matter is a dead mineral medium. It's like a like a, a parking lot, the gravel parking lot. A five percent organic matter soil is teeming with life. It's just full of life. Some of it you can see, worms and bugs. Some of it you can't see, microbes. But to to, to put that in a practical example of what it does for you. 1% organic matter will absorb a one-inch rain event. That's 27,000 gallons on one acre. Ours, ours is, is 5%, so it'll hold five inches, five times 27,000 gallons. My neighbor's soil is a half percent. It'll hold 13,000 gallons. So when we get seven, we get five, six-inch rain events here. That happens. So... That just from a moisture holding uh, perspective, that's what it does for you. And we can go on and on about the benefits of a healthy uh, soil. I keep going on about these gems that you drop. And I think, you know, experience teaches wisdom. And I often just learn from uh, listening to folks like yourself, Will. And when you, you said the line, and it's it may not be yours, but again, impactful, for every pestilence nature sends, she sends the cure. And not only, I feel like it doesn't only apply to um, what you're doing there on the farm, but it also applies to when we go through our own personal challenges in life. I went through some health challenges because of my past dietary choices. And if it wasn't for folks like you out here doing podcasts, I listened to them and started to realize and learn from myself that I managed to come full circle, and we'll talk about closing loops in a minute, to be able to do this podcast, which I mentioned to you is an incredible honor for me to do. When you talk about closing these loops, Will, 
and you're very proud of it at what you do at White Oak. What does that mean for the listener? What loops are you closing on the farm and continue to do so? Well, I'll use the the quote that you, you that you gave. Uh, that's that, that's not from me, by the way. That's one of the ancient Greeks. So it's way far from me, but I it really has shaped my life. And truly, in nature, for every pestilence that she sends, she sends the cure. We can we can talk about that all day long, but there are just millions of interactions going on in nature around us where. Things are proliferating and things are limiting what's proliferating and things stay in balance. When we made uh, agriculture linear as opposed to cyclical, which is what we did post-World War II, we moved from, from keeping everything alive and thriving and going, which is what I do today, to killing stuff. You know, the, the pesticide, side means kill. Herbicide kills plants. Insecticide kills insects. Nematicides kill nematodes, on and on. So what we started to do when we made it so linear is we turned the farmer into a hunter. And when I was raising cattle industrially, I went to my pastures every day and looked for something to kill. And I can find something. You know, I was good enough at it that I could find a a mold or a bug or a plant or some, something that I thought needed killing. And big multinational uh, pesticide companies market chemistry to do that, and I and I would pay them for it and 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 buy it and use it, and I felt like I made money using it because it cost me X per acre and took out a pest that was costing more than that. So it seemed profitable. What I did not understand and what I think that many farmers don't understand is when I did that, when I did that procedure and used that pesticide to handle that pest, it took out other things too. It didn't just take out that pest. So something else went out of control, so I had to buy another pesticide. And the same thing would happen. It would control the pest I was targeting, but other pests would or other creatures would would be uh, find it lethal. And then I'd lose the benefit that they provided. And that's what we've done. And it's just over and over and over. And it's multi-billions of dollars. And I don't think that... Uh, uh, in the beginning, uh, pesticide companies planned it that way, but it certainly worked out well for them financially. It sure did. And I often ask myself, why aren't more farmers and folks getting into the regenerative agricultural space knowing the harm that these pesticides and herbicides are causing to our topsoil? But again, through listening to yourself and other regenerative farmers that I've uh, found online and understanding that they're heavily invested in the system. And it's very difficult, as you highlighted and have spoke about today, in making that shift, specifically also because of the subsidies that are provided through the government and the, the change that you have to endure 
as you rightly said, you know, you have to go through some pain to get to the through the process. But what do you think now? Are you finding some hope in this space, Will, where you're having more farmers come to you and, and at least ask questions about this? It, it's a mixed bag. Uh, yes, there are more farmers showing interest. There are more consumers showing interest in food that's raised without all those industrial technical tools being used on. But the the industries that are profiting from that, the multinational uh, pesticide companies, commodity companies, uh, on and on, are doing a fantastic job with what I call greenwashing, which is messaging things differently. And and these, these people are brilliant. You know, we're you know, we we used to talk about organic, and then we talked about uh, sustainable and renewable and nice regenerative, and we've been through all all the different adjectives, I guess those are, that, that we can come up with to describe what we do. And you know, big ag ultimately will take them away from us. You know, they will use them very skillfully in a manner that describes what they do and, and devalues what we do. So it's a, it's a, it's it's the biggest problem, and that's what I refer to as greenwashing, and that is the worst problem we have. Fact is, to convert a farm from being very industrial to being very, we'll just say green, is is difficult, even without adversity, even if if even if the you know, big money people are not telling you that it's not necessary to do it that way. It's it's still hard to do. I told you we went for some years and we didn't make money here. But it's worth it. It's the right thing to do. But it's very hard to get that message. And the, these farmers that, that surround me here, my friends and neighbors and relatives, are good people. They're fine people. And they don't believe they're doing anything wrong. And they're farming the way their dad and granddad did it. They're farming the way they learned at the university. They're farming the way that the Department of Agriculture uh, uh, county agent system tells them to farm. You know, it's just, it's just, it's, it's a very hard decision for a farmer to say, I'm going to start doing it that way. It's radically different. I'm going to start doing it that way. It's hard. Before we go on to a little bit further on the greenwashing side, Will, and what that exactly means for the consumer, I wonder if you could talk, there's two words that you often drop, and that is, and this relates to what we're talking about right now, efficiency versus resiliency. And how does that impact what these farmers are going through now and the industrial versus the regenerative model? Yeah, so what we think, we believe what we do here is highly resilient. It can withstand a lot of adversity and, and, and continue. And it's very uh, cyclical. The, the opposite is very linear, and it's a chain of events. And it's, in my mind, it's very, very fragile. You know, you can build a building incredibly tall, but at some point, it becomes unstable. And I feel like that's what we've done with our food production system. I think that we have scaled it up to the point that's very, very fragile. And I think we saw that during the pandemic. You know, uh, I think that we have seen it before, and we'll see it again. And um, and I, 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 that concerns me. Concerns me too. We've definitely felt it where I live, and continue to feel the impacts. 
I know for you, the pandemic was a bit of a boon in terms of your online ordering. However, that wasn't the same for everyone. And it speaks to the fact that we need to get to know our local farmers even better. <laughs> if God forbid anything like this happens again, someone like yourself that is out there. Will, before I wanted to just, I wanted to just highlight this greenwashing. And again, just, just as we tie into that, I wonder if you could let the listeners know how many species, different species of animals now and types of products are you are doing at White Oak Pastures? We raise uh, cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits, and several different species of poultry. And, uh, and we have a garden and raise a lot of different organic vegetables. We have eggs. We've got a few tree nuts. We're experimenting with some uh, tree fruits. You know, the, the more things that we can allow the land to produce, the more bounty we've got, the, the, the more prosperous we think the farm can become. Now, all these things take time. And of course, there's the, the problem of developing market to go with it. My farm Bluff, is uh, White Oak Pastures is located in uh, Bluffton, Georgia, which is in Clay County, Georgia. In Clay County, Georgia, was the poorest county in the United States of America in uh, 2020, and it hadn't gotten much better. Uh, we're we're the largest employer in the county, and we write a hundred thousand dollars in payroll checks every Friday, and I'm happy that we can do that. But it's a, it's an economically impoverished area. It's incredible what your farm has done for Bluffton and what the impact of potentially other regenerative farms could be on impoverished areas and especially the so-called food deserts where all you have access to are fast foods or 7-Elevens. I've spoke to a number of guests who have driven through or lived in these areas. So once again, thank you for all that you're doing. Before we leave this important topic, I just want to make sure we cover it for the consumers and those that may not understand the impact that greenwashing has on what they pick up at the grocery store. Now, listeners, you have to understand, I'm listening to the gentleman who sold Whole Foods, their very first label, grass-fed American beef. So he knows more than anyone what the impact of this greenwashing is doing, not only to the consumer, but especially for the regenerative farmers and the U.S. farmers in that space. From my understanding, Will, and you can talk to it a little better, that it has gotten so bad now that the meats are being labeled as American, even though they weren't raised and slaughtered in the United States. They just managed to make it to the U.S. and then are pieced up there. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, pro that's probably as good an example of greenwashing as we could possibly come up with. When I started... Uh, when I changed this business in the late 19, uh, 90s, early 2000s, beef was had to be labeled from a country of origin labeling. It was American beef or it was not. Uh, in 2005, uh, the uh, uh, USDA was petitioned to change that rule so that any beef uh, that was had value added to it in this country became a product of the USA. That opened the gates so that uh, hundreds of thousands of head of cattle that was raised in New Zealand, Australia, Uruguay, 20 other countries could come into this country uh, slaughtered uh, and, and be sold as a product of the USA. Born, raised, and slaughtered in 20 countries, up to 20 countries, 
the product of the USA. It's just horribly wrong. It's legal. It's absolutely legal. It's been done, done through administration, but it's it's just a lie. It's not a product of the USA. Will, then, what would you say from a consumer perspective, how can they start to understand? Because, you know, when I first began adding animal foods from folks like yourself back into my diet, I saw things like pasture-raised and cage-free when it came to eggs and then grass-fed and also grass-finished and how that can be different for folks. Is there a way for them to now know with the labeling that's in the United States, for example, to know what the difference is? Or do they really need to educate themselves and just your advice is go direct to the, your closest farmer? Yeah, that would be my advice. The fact is, the consumer cannot tell by that label what they're getting. It's just as simple as that. And, and it's not even illegal. It's just that the labeling laws are such that. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's sad, but it's uh, absolutely necessary that consumers know something about their farm. It would be great if you could visit the farm. I know everybody can't do that. In our case, we're so remote, we have spent a lot of money uh, putting in lodging and a restaurant and a store for people to come here and visit and have a place to stay. We also put a lot of effort into our social media so that people can get to know us without coming. Of course, it, I, I, you know, that, I think that has value. You can lie on social media, but it's hard to lie on social media if you also have dozens and dozens of people on the farm every day. I mean, it's just, you got to pick one or the other. So you can go on our social media, see what we have, uh, what we claim we do. Then you can come and look at it. If you're not in a position to do that, you can know that somebody's on this farm looking at it right now, you know, right this very minute. Well, before we go on to our next uh, foray into the reasons for writing your book, The Bold Return to Giving a Damn, I just want to touch because a lot of my listeners just happen to be ex-vegans that have found me online, listened to the show. I interview a lot of ex-vegans vegans who have added animal foods and regained their health. Just so you know, I was never one of the militant ones. I think you can tell that today. I just, that's not my way. I did it for a lot of the good reasons that a lot of these folks did that when a lot of the information was out there. They believed what they heard which can happen. They also wanted to do it for their health. They wanted to do it for the environment. Understanding what I do now, and you respect vegans as I do with their choices, but it's the militant side that really I never understood, especially now since they're attacking me as well online for telling my story. I know you get very upset when they come at you that that it's better for the environment and the environmental impacts. We've already talked about the the soil health. I wonder if you could just touch on this carbon thing and how much you are sequestering per however many it is and on your farm versus the plant-based meats. I thought that was so interesting. There's that study that has been done. It's up on your website as well. Yeah, there is. In fact, it's like I call it an LCA, a life cycle assessment. And a company that we were doing business with paid for this that uh, $80,000 study to be done here. And what it uh, determined is that uh, we actually sequester two and a half pounds of carbon for every pound of beef that we sell. And we're very proud of that. And, and you know, and there have been, uh, been people that argued that, no, it's more than that. And others argued, no, it's less than that. And I don't know, I don't know if it's two and a half pounds. I do know that the color of my soil has changed, and I can see it. It's gotten darker, and that's the carbon. That's the organic mile. 
So you know, the uh, there was a uh, just this is just a, a gift from God, but uh, a uh, plant based meat company happened to have the same environmental science outfit. Quantis is name of it. Do a uh, uh, life cycle assessment for for their product, and their product had a carbon footprint of positive two point five pounds of carbon per pound of of meat substitute product. Exactly the opposite of ours. So uh, my joke was that if you want to eat their product, you got to eat a, a pound of their product. You got to eat a pound of mine to break even, to be neutral. Incredible. And again, one of the things that spurred me on was just watching stuff on regenerative farms. And, and I know you guys are a savory hub and following Alan Savory and his work, and you cannot help but just be awed by the transformation that that man has made in his work in Africa specifically and what he's doing there. And then looking at what you have done at White Oak and bringing this, as you said, this cyclical nature back and how the animals have returned even to the point where you were tithing to nature with the bald eagles that came back to uh, hunt at your your poultry f flock a little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alan Alan Savory is really a, an incredible person, and I, you know, I don't read much, and uh, you know, I don't. I, I just I figure things out for myself. That's not to my credit. That's just the way it works. And I had uh, somehow. Uh, gotten pretty far down the road in the early 2000s and never heard of Alan Savory. And he spoke at a American Grassfield Association conference that I was attending. I was actually the president of it at the time. And he was talking and I was standing in the back, not particularly paying attention, but I started listening to him and it was incredible. And I realized that he knew so much more than I did. And I'd been doing it for years. I thought I was really good at it. But he was light years ahead of me. So I signed up and went to Africa and took my holistic training and have, have been very, very glad I had that, that opportunity. Tremendous. And again, I'm so jealous of that because I see that. But I, I tell you this, Will, and I was going to tell you before we ended the show, I am going to come visit you on White Oak Pastures because it is a mission and a dream of mine to come see you and, and meet with you and Jenny and just uh, have a have a tour of your farm. And you've touched on that, that visitors now can come and rent cabins and the impact that your farm has had on Bluffton. Talk to the listeners a little bit about that. And uh, over the years, I know it's, uh, as you mentioned, had been the one of the poorest in Clay County, but now it's uh, become quite a happening little, little town, hasn't it? Bluffton, I tell you, I'm very, very pleased with the progress that we've made in Bluffton. And that was absolutely not on my radar screen. You know, I was focused on the animals and the land. In the rural community, I thought it was just a casualty. It had been dying all my life and was pretty well dead. But when we changed the way we farm, we needed more people. So we hired them. And we paid them a little better than the, this this impoverished market typically pays people. Attracted great, great, great people. And they needed a place to eat and drink and sleep and play. And we provided that. And suddenly the town was nice. I mean, it's not big, but it's nice. And I'm very proud of that. 
And so you should be, sir. That's uh, that's an incredible thing when you take such joy in what you're doing and feel so good about the changes that you've made in your own life and for the life of your family that it impacts the people around you profoundly. And there can be no greater joy. And I heard you share once that you're profoundly happy now with the changes that you've made and what you're doing in your life these days with your family. I tell you, it, it all begins the law to be as happy as I am. I'm a happy man. I love to hear that. And I love to hear um, folks share their joy for what they're doing. Let's talk a little bit about this wonderful book. I'm holding it up here, folks, if you can see it. A Bold Return to Giving a Damn. Mr. Harris, what was the reason, and I know it's to share knowledge, but also to get some stuff down that you've been storing. You've you've forgotten stuff that I haven't even learned yet, as I like to say. So please tell us the reason why you got this book out there. That, that's kind of interesting to me, the way that occurred. is uh, We had talked internally, my, me and my, my family, about a book, and and I simply didn't have that capability. You know, I'm 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 I'm, I'm very non-linear. If I start telling you a story, I'll I'll wind up telling a different story. I just get off, and that's the way my my mind works. The way it's always worked. I just knew I couldn't do it. And we were approached by uh, folks representing Penguin Viking Random House, and they asked about writing a book. And I just told them I. I I'm honored I can't do that. I mean, I just, I couldn't know how to start. And they hired a very, very talented young woman, uh, Amy Lee Graven is her name, and she lives in California, to, to write the book, like a ghostwriter, I guess is what they call her, although her name's on my book, happily. And she came here and spent a lot of time, and for over a year, every Friday, we had a phone conversation two to four hours and it was i like emily a lot but it was painful i mean she is a brilliant person and i think she's got some kind of computer program that keeps up with stuff so well and she would uh, you know after we got past the social amenities iu it was straight to work and she had questions she would ask and she would challenge me when i tell her something she said wait a minute you told me on June 18th something that sounded different. I said, no, 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 no. That what I told you then, I would straighten it out. And she really, uh, really kept me on task and made me perform. And I'm very pleased with the work product that I give her credit for. My experience, but her, her work product. I let folks know what I'm reading currently in terms of my book. So I made a post when I first purchased it. And then I made a subsequent post on my social media handles about what I thought about the book. And I think I said it was a straight shooting, no holds barred approach to the benefits that regenerative agriculture can have. And I encouraged everyone to go get it. And I'm encouraging them again. Just a fantastic read. And then if you folks want to, they can get the audio version where I believe you also read the audio version, didn't you? I did. I did. It was as painful as that was, I did. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to enjoy getting that one too, because after our conversation today, I want to go back and re-listen re to it and uh, absorb even more of the gems that are in there. So thank you again for writing it and getting it out there. Will, as we wind down a little bit, I wanted to talk about the future, your thoughts on the future, 
and the nonprofit that you started and the reason for starting that and what you're trying to do to, to all puns intended, spread the, the seeds and knowledge of, of what you're doing now at White Oak. We did. We formed a uh, nonprofit, a 501c3 called CFAR. That's the acronym. It's uh, Center for Agricultural Resilience. And uh, it is my attempt to uh, help people learn uh, how we got here from the industrial model. And we uh, have people sign up for classes. We have, uh, I think, probably going to be 30 or so uh, classes this year uh, on things from uh, uh, cattle production to gardening to uh, sheep production. So sheep, we were we're raising sheep under solar arrays. That's a big deal for us now, and and a lot of there's a steep learning curve to that. And we we have we have been through that learning curve. I don't want anybody else to have to go through it without a little bit of help. So. It's to it's to help uh, a lot. We get a lot of consumers here that want to know how food is produced. But the original intent was uh, transitioning farmers that want to move from the industrial commodity model to this kinder, gentler you know, form of agricultural food production. As someone much wiser than me once said, "Where there's a will." There's a way, and I think that applies direct, <laughs> directly to the gentleman I'm talking to today. Mr. Harris, I just I just wanted to end out by saying, you know, the the measure of a man is by the legacy he leaves, I believe, and I was taught that. And you've done such profound work thus far and have much more to go, I know, uh, in store. And with what you're doing with this nonprofit and the bold steps that you took to make the change from the industrial linear model into the regenerative model and seeing nature come full circle back to the farm. It's so appreciated. Talk to the folks about what's happening. I know you never set out to save the world and you talk about you set out to save white oak uh, pastures and what that means for you and your family now and who you've got following in your footsteps there at the farm. So, you know, we, uh, we sell 25 or maybe, maybe a little more million dollars worth of product a year. And that that's fine, but I never intended to to operate that on that scale. Uh, it, one thing led to the next to the next. We had to build these uh, slaughter plants for red meat and poultry, and it just took a certain amount of business to do it. And you know, the chicken comes before the egg. I had to build the plant so I could have the product to sell. And as a result, we've built this business and we sell product literally in forty eight states. And that's fine. I'm grateful for the business, but it's not my vision. You know, I want there to be a lot of white oak pastures in the country serving their market. And it's very difficult to find what is your market. Is, is, it, is it this corner of Georgia or is it Georgia? Or, or you know, But I want the food production business to be as localized as it can be. And I really want to see a lot of other white oak pastures throughout the country. And I don't care if it cannibalizes some of the volume we've got here on white oak pastures. I, 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 
I tell people I like, I know it's not as simple as this, but I'd like to see a white oak pastures, not by that name. We're not, we're not trying to franchise anything here. We're trying, we're just trying to promote an idea. But I wish there was a white oak pastures lookalike in every agricultural county in the nation. And it may be a long time before that happens, but I would like to see there be more and more and more of us. And there are others. There's some there's some great people across the country doing it, but it's just not enough. As a final message of of not only hope for those folks out there and seeing what White Oak has done for the animals, for the soil, for the environment, the sequestering of carbon, we've talked about that. Moreover, for your family, for the local town of Bluffton, what are you seeing and hearing from other farmers, uh, Will, that have gone and ventured out into the same route that you're doing? Are they having similar successes in what they're doing? I could imagine so. I mean, I know we talked about it takes some time, but are you hearing positive feedback from other farmers now? I, uh, every, everyone I know has got nothing but, but, but great things to say about the journey other than the finance part of it. You know, the, the, the economics is difficult, but those of us who have been able to afford to make it are... I think they're as happy as I am. You know, there's the, you know, Gabe Brown, Greg Gunthorpe, Blake Alexander. They're, they're, they're just numbers of them across the country that have been through the pain and gotten to the other side. And again, the financial reward is not rich, but it's it's a, a, a very good life. It's a very good, uh, and so easily multi-generational. It's so easy to, uh, you know, my two of my uh, two of my three children decided to come back here to the farm, and I I would have not thought that would have happened at all. But when we made the changes we made, it turned into a very desirable lifestyle that brought them back. Incredible, and I know that if your father grandfather and great-grandfather were around, yeah, they might have been challenged by the idea of it, to see the current iteration of White Oak, and then, as I had to do and many others do, understanding the benefits behind it would be so proud of what you're doing. And I just want to say, Will, as we close out that, what I've said it before, what an honor and privilege it is to have you here on the podcast today. Thank you so much for writing the book. Thank you for making that bold return to giving a damn and doing what you do. We're so appreciative. There's so many of us out here that want to say thank you. James, I really appreciate you having me on the show today. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, sir. Best to you and your family over this upcoming holiday season. And um, I hope to catch up with you in person at White Oak very soon. I'm holding you to that. That's a commitment. And that's a wrap on this episode of Carnivorous Chats. If you've made it this far, I want to say thank you for listening and also thank you in advance for liking, subscribing, or sharing this episode. Thanks again to Equip Foods, Carnivore Snacks, and the Carnivore Bar. Don't forget to check the link in the show notes to get a discount on their products. Until the next time, be well 